Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture reading is Matthew 12, 38 to 50. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with, that wicked, with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. All right. Thank you. Check. It's loud. How you guys doing? Okay. Woo. Here we go. Um, Big passage. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. There's three main sections to this passage, Um, yet the the compilation that Matthew and his church put together for us to read, because this was written by Matthew in community with his church, um, (coughs) it was not put together um, chronologically. These statements come from different places in the book of Mark. Uh, there's an ancient book, which we no longer have. It's called, um, it's, they just, scholars call it Q. It's the, it's the sayings of Jesus, the teachings of Christ. Um, there's an ancient guy named Papias who claims that Matthew wrote it. Um, that would make perfect sense. So there's this book called Q. It's the teachings of Christ. Um, and so what we have is some passages from that, some passages from Mark put together by Matthew and his church um, for you, uh, for a specific message for you to, for you to grasp. That's what this is. Um, again, this is not a chronological book. Some of the Gospels attempt to be more chronological. This one is not, on purpose. So the questions you need to ask are, why are these things together? What sense does that make? Um, and so here's the way this is. There is a conversation with a rebuttal. Then there's a parable. And then there's a sort of an episode at the end. So three wildly different things all put together for a message for you and I um, to grapple with. Okay, so... Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start right here in verse 38, okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our hearts and our thoughts and our conversations. Allow us, first of all, to be present, to be here with our brothers and sisters, um, all gathered together as equals with one Lord. Um, I ask for wisdom, not just knowledge. Um, Give us perspective. Give us understanding. Allow me to speak clearly and communicate clearly and, and freely. Um, bring something to each of our minds that, that we need to grab hold of and hold on to. Uh, continue to make us whole and guide us 
Thank you for everyone in this place right now. Each one of us gathered together as a different part of your body to represent you in this neighborhood. We love you. In your name, amen. Okay, so there's a conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees. Here we go. Uh, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay, so this is... Let's put this in context. Jesus' audience, uh, Jesus, the people Jesus is talking to are Jewish. Um, Matthew's audience that this book was intended to be read by, uh, first century Jews. So here we are, um, Jewish mindset to be reading this thing. Uh, in, in the first century, there was a regular question uh, from rabbis, from prophets, um, that people would ask rabbis and prophets. They would walk up and, and after hearing a message that they believed was from God, that maybe the person who said it, a rabbi would say, I have a message from God for you, something you are to do, something you are to think about, something for you to receive. They would say it. And then the people would say, give us a sign that this is true. This is a regular occurrence that would always happen. Um, there are, if you read like first, and first to, to third century rabbinical texts, there's constant conversations like this. And there's some, Really incredible stories. There's this one about um, a rabbi who one of his students asked him, he says, hey, um, when will the Messiah come? And that rabbi looks at his students and he says, I don't want to tell you because if I tell you, you're going to ask me for a sign. And I don't want to give you a sign. It's like my day off. And they said, look, okay, how about this? We won't ask you for a sign. We just want you to tell us when the Messiah is going to come. And this rabbi says, you're not going to ask me for a sign? They're like, no, no, we're not. He's like, okay. And then he says, let me read this to you. Um, uh, the gates of Rome would fall and then be rebuilt, and they would fall again. When, and, and there would not be time to restore the gates before the son of David comes. So he's going to say, Rome's going to fall. They're going to rebuild the wall. It's going to fall down again, like someone's going to knock it down. And then while it's down, the Messiah is going to walk in and show up and conquer Rome with his soldiers, right? So they say this. And then right after he says this, his, his, his students, his Talmudim, look at him and go, give us a sign. That's what they say. He's like, I told you I was going to give you a sign. They're like, well, give us a sign, please. And so after pressing him for a sign for a while, he finally goes, fine. And he turns the river of the cave of Banias to blood. That's how the text goes. <laughs> okay. Now, don't roll your eyes so hard. There's plenty more of these stories. Now, um, there's another one about Rabbi Eliezer, who some people are challenging him. Then they're saying, that is, there's no way that's a message from God. And he goes, it is a message from God, and I'll prove it to you. I'll give you a sign. And so the sign was that there's, there was this locust bean tree. I don't even know what that is, a locust bean tree. And apparently it moved at his bidding, 100 cubits. Nay, some say 400 cubits, what the text says. And then they still didn't believe him. So they're in the synagogue. They go back there, and they're still arguing. And so what he does is he, he calls on the, the, the walls of the synagogue, and, he, and, and they lean forward over the people, all right? And the text says they couldn't be put back until another rabbi came in and was like, ugh, ugh, and pushes them all back. Okay? Now, did any of this really happen? Of course not. Maybe it did, though. All right? Now, moving on. That's not the point. Whether or not these things happen is not the point. There is this back and forth. There is this mindset that you need to grasp to fully grasp a passage like this. Um, They have come to Jesus, and they have asked for a sign. And they are demanding... um, Jesus to tell them, not only to, to, to tell, Jesus is saying things that they disagree with and they refuse to accept them unless Jesus does some kind of miracle. And Jesus kind of says, um, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give that to you. Now, it's not wrong 
to look at something and say, I think God is telling me something. I think God is speaking to me. I think there's this miraculous thing going on. I, I don't know. I think God wants me to go this direction. I can't explain it, but I think God wants me to. That's perfectly fine and dandy. Like that's, accept that. That's fine. But the problem here with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law was that there was no sign big enough. They, they no longer heard the message of God in the normal. It had to be in the abnormal, the big, the impressive, right? Um, they wouldn't believe anything was of God unless it was big and impressive, unless there was a show involved and a miracle. Um, they had lost touch with their ability to see God in the everyday, the mundane, and the normal. This is not far off from how a lot of people today struggle with God. They, they, they go through these moments where their kids are driving them nuts in there, and they're exhausted, and they're feeding their, their children, and, and they're just maybe stop, and they think, they think I, I just, this is, this is not God's will for me because it's not big and grand and amazing. There's not mir- I, I look at people's Instagram feeds, and obviously that's what their life is like every moment of the day. And why isn't mine like that? Um, however, Jesus is chastising these people for not hearing God in the very normal mundane thing. There's nothing more beautiful than taking care of God's children. There's nothing more beautiful than providing food and sustenance and holding someone when they're crying and when they're sick and they're weeping or they're throwing up, they're ill. There is nothing more of a gift from God to that person than you in that moment. And if you refuse to to see the beauty of God in these everyday, common, mundane moments, um, you are losing the meaning in all of it. Instead, we kind of have become a bit of a generation because everything we look at is is well-produced, right? There's soundtracks, and you walk down the street. You can't even walk down the street without putting a great soundtrack in your ears because you've got to feel like you're in a movie, right? Like, you've got to feel like, you got to feel like it's this like, epic journey that you're on, but oftentimes we lose touch with the everyday, finding Christ in the common, the everyday, um, the beauty of it and the gift in it all. So, um, and here's the thing. Um, they had their own perceptions about what God was like and the message of God, what it would be. And they knew what it would sound like when they heard it because they had already decided what God was like. Um, they believed God when God came as the Messiah, that, that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would help them overthrow Rome and they would lead a revolution, a violent one, and they would slaughter everyone. And, and, the, and then Israel would be established again with their own Davidic king on their throne with their own land and only Jews living there. Okay, It was very nationalistic and sort of monochromatic. That's what they wanted. And what Jesus, the Messiah, was actually bringing them was nothing like that. It was wildly different. Instead, he, would, he wanted them to sit at the table with their enemies to make everyone God's people. And they rejected this. They didn't want this. And we all know, um, especially in our generation today, um, and this has been growing and it's, it's going to continue to get worse, that when you are already decided on how things are, um, whether it's, it's your opinions on, 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 on government, on policies, on, on church, on theology, on anything, you have decided what is right and what is wrong. And no matter how much evidence anyone gives you against it, you reject that evidence because obviously it is wrong. Um, let's do an experiment, shall we? Okay. We all know who this is. This could be, this could not go, go well. Um, this is George Washington, okay? A generally beloved character, right? Um, he, you know, he's known for having integrity, for doing good things, for leading a, a revolution. He's a good guy who led a violent revolution against me. Anyways, um, uh, just... 
just known for being a great leader, a man of integrity and stuff. I just read a book on him recently. It was, it was fascinating character. Seems like a really good guy in his context in his day. Now, um, notice his smile's a little, a little puffy. A little, he never grins with his teeth. You know why? He didn't have any teeth. Um, and growing up, there's like this folklore that goes around. You know, I heard that, oh, I was told when I was a kid, he had wooden teeth, wooden dentures. I'm like, wow, wooden dentures. That's amazing. Um, and then later on, someone said, no, actually, they, um, they were, we have them, and they're made of ivory. Ooh, ivory dentures. He's fancy. Okay, now, um, so um, we had this general idea and this picture of a whole person and the things that they struggled with and the things that they conquered over. However, um, it would be very threatening to hear something that went against that narrative, something maybe like, like maybe if you were to hear that he had another set of teeth that were made from the teeth of slaves. You would hear something like that and you would say, there's no way I reject that. Um, I reject that because um, I have a picture in my mind of what this person was like, and that works against my picture in my mind of what things should be like. And so I reject your evidence, and you know what? I actually demand a sign from you that that is true. I want a source. I demand a source. By the way, uh, there's a source right from his own journal. Now, that feeling you have right now, let's go with that, okay? You have a picture of somebody, and it's now being threatened. You're like, what do I do with this? And now you're going to have to be... Deal with that later on your own. I'm going to talk about that feeling you have, okay? I'm just here to break stuff. Um, Now, that feeling you have right now is very important because this is how the Pharisees were feeling. Because Jesus walks in and he says, God is like this. This is what God is going to do. And you're like, no, I need a sign. I need a source. I need you to show me that this message is a message from God. Okay, so this is the setup. Here we are. Here's Jesus' answer. We go into it like this. Uh, Verse 40, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, I'm going to stop here for a second. There is, in this answer, it's a little confusing. We'll break it all down. There is a main um, sort of um, a main plot, and then there's like two subplots. Okay, two subpoints and a main point that, that... um, that we're going we're gonna to do like this. So the, the main point is right here, the part we just read. It talks about Jonah. Um, and Matthew um, puts this here so that you will sit in, and compare um, Jesus to Jonah. All right, Jonah, they're all on a boat. Um, they've turned against what God wants them to do, the mission of God. Jonah has, and now everything is in peril. They're in the boat. And, and Jonah says, you need to throw me over as sort of a sacrifice. And then, and then like he goes down, he's in the fish for three days now, and it comes out the other end and people are saved. All right. So Matthew's like, when you read the book of Jonah, try thinking of Jesus and this story will give you some understanding. And so that's what he's doing here. And he says, so he's basically telling the church, their church and you and I and every church in between us and them, um, stop looking for these aggrandized massive signs that God is speaking to you. The only sign you need is the resurrection, the sign of Jonah. That's all you need. Um, three days in the grave, brought back, um, not too far gone. Nothing is too far gone for God to fix. And, and so there's this, there's this encouragement there that like, you don't need to do this. You don't need to do what, what God's people have done. Don't be the kind of people that run around looking for these massive, big signs. Look for God in the normal everyday. When you hear the voice of God, know it and affirm it there. Now, uh, that's the big point. There's two sub points underneath this. In verse 41, um, you have... A, you have the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, that is the city Jonah was going to. So the Ninevites were Assyrians. 
If you know anything about the Assyrians, they were violence terrifying people, like the Vikings of the, of, of the ancient world, right? Even though the Vikings were the Vikings of the ancient world. But f- probably around the same time, honestly. But they were terrible, nonetheless. And they were pursuing the Israelites, regularly slaughtering them, committing genocide, um, taking them into bondage, making them their slaves, um, just really um, terrorizing the, the, the Israelites for generations. And so Jesus says, um, the Ninevites will stand at judgment. One day you will stand before God, God's own people, the scribes and the teachers of the law, and the Ninevites are going to be standing there beside you. And you know what the Ninevites did? They heard the simple message of God. Jonah walks in and says, God is calling you. Repent. And the whole city breaks down bawling and crying, and they, and, they, and they put on sackcloth and ashes, an ancient way of putting on mourning clothes, and they even covered the animals with sackcloth and ashes. It's huge. And everyone's just like, that was the word of God. The Israelites are, are bringing us the word of God. Um, and they repent. So on the day of judgment, God's people standing right here and the Ninevites standing right here and they look at the God's people and they say, we, we understood the word of God. Us who were actually slaughtering God's people. How did you not understand the word of God? Okay, that's the first plot. And there's one more here. Um, uh, in verse 42, the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, um, very rich, powerful woman, um, very wise but heard the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of God coming through the mouth of Solomon, and she travels from the ends of the earth, it says here, to Solomon to hear the words of God. And so then he says, imagine yourself standing before God at the judgment, and the queen of Sheba is standing there. She, she was rich. She had everything. She had the, all of the wisdom in the entire world at her fingertips, and, and philosophers all around her talking in her ear. And she's going to look at you and say, you know, I recognize the word of God. I've heard everything, and I recognize the message of God. How did you not recognize the message of God? The whole point of this whole argument um, is that God's own people can't even see what the pagans can. This is the same argument he has been making for the entirety of chapter 12. If you were to look at all of chapter 12 from beginning to end, it is, it is, it is the Matthean church telling you, by the way, God's people struggle with hearing the word of God more so than people who are not God's people. And you have to grasp this and you need to keep this in your mind as you move forward as a church to doing the work of God. It's very important for the Matthew church that you understand this. Um, and both times Jesus says, um, there's one greater than Jonah here. There's one greater than Solomon here. And you can't even hear the word of God coming from this greater one than they. Okay? So um, that is the first rebuttal. After this rebuttal, there is a parable that Jesus um, lays out. And this is an interesting parable. This is a, a parable is basically a, a, a sort of a, a story um, with a sort of um, a spiritual meaning that you were supposed to grasp. And it's something that, you're, that a story somebody would tell and you just sit and ponder it. Uh, it's not meant to be a history thing. It's not meant to be necessarily literal. Sometimes they were, oftentimes they weren't. Um, this is not a story. So this is not a story that you're meant to get um, your theology about spirits and demons from. This is meant to be something you ponder and ponder the message of God from, this particular story. So um, here's how it goes. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and it does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. 
That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So he says this whole thing and says, and I want you to think about yourselves because the meaning of this text has directly to do with you. Now, you being the Jewish people in the first century that Jesus was talking to. Um, So we're going to talk about sort of what this meant to them, and then we're going to talk about what it means for us. So in the story, Jesus describes a man's heart as a house. And in that house... Um, evil lives there, and evil has done a number on this place. Um, and it talks about evil as a spirit, and spirit's kind of living there, and it's just trashed the whole place, and it's decaying, and it's falling apart, and the evil, evil is there, just, just living it up, making a mess of things. And, and at some point, the guy says, my heart is a mess, it's destroyed, it's broken, um, my soul is in anguish, I need to make things right and whole again, and so I'm going to clean myself up. And maybe you felt this, this has been you before. And you say, I'm going to make things whole again. And so you actually, um, you go into the process of, of clearing out your heart of all these things that are, you do a lot of hard work and you get it all out of there. You repent and you clean it all up and you make it calm and, and, and clean again. Um, and you order it again. And you sort of say, here it is. I've cleaned it up. So that spirit, meanwhile, is wandering around an arid place, the desert, and the spirit finds nowhere to go. He's like, well, there's no house out here. I need a person to live in. You know what? Forget this. I'm going back to where I came from. And the evil goes back to the heart, heart, heart house of, a, of the person there, and the evil moves in, and he walks in and goes, wow, I love what you've done with the place. It's really clean. This color really makes it feel bigger. It opens up the space. Um, Need some furniture. Other than that, we're good. You know what? I bet I could fit some friends in here. And evil goes out and gets seven of evil's friends, seven other evil friends. And they're all like, hey, party. And they all come in. And they move in. And instantly the evil is back. And it's worse than it was before. And then Jesus says, that is how it will be with your generation. What in the world does that mean? Okay. This is all set in the context of the Jewish people. When you read a story like this, remember, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was not a Christian, okay? That would be weird because he's, he's Christ. Um, anyways, um, he was Jewish. When he speaks, you need to contemplate as best you can his words in a Jewish context. Um, and so in order to understand this, we need to talk about the story of Israel for a second. I'm going to take a bunch of bits and pieces from other sermons that we've done already leading up to this point. I'm going to put them all together here. We're going to start with this. The cycle of Israel. This has to come to the forefront of your mind. Um, Israel's story for generation upon generation all through the scriptures was exactly the same. They would have a king that would rise to power. This king would either be good or it would be bad. Either way, the people, um, either the king or the people themselves, they would fall into idolatry. Following things, going on missions that had nothing to do with what they were here for. Worshipping other gods, chasing after money and power and all these things. Um, And every time they did evil... God would sort of remove his presence there and they would fall into the oppression of the surrounding enemies, whoever it was at the time. And as they're in, in oppression, sometimes it would, it would be short, sometimes it would be for generations. And at some point though, they stand up and they say, I hate this, this is no fun at all, and they repent, okay? Think about the spirit making a wreck of the place and they repent and they decide, 
we're going to clean this place up. We're going to clean our hearts up. And so they purge themselves of the evil. They repent and they cry out for God to rescue them. And God comes and there's deliverance. And he sends either a judge or a king or a rescuer. And they are delivered. And then that king rules until the day that they die. And then it starts over. The next king rises, the thing slides over, and it starts over again. This is the story of the Old Testament over and over and over. And in the first century, we find ourselves again in this story. Um, They had been doing evil. They had been practicing idolatry. Um, Now they find themselves under Roman oppression. And they are crying out. The Pharisees, the people that Jesus is talking to, their main job was to run around telling people how to clean their house up, how to clean your heart, how to obey the law and get holy. This was not a nefarious thing. They weren't doing this to be evil. They thought this was the will of God. They were running around telling everyone, do right, get rid of the sin, keep the law, make more laws around those laws and more laws around those laws because somehow we have to obey these so that we can be delivered. And so that our king can reign. This is where they were. This is the story that, they, that how they looked at their own history and the story that they were in. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, look, you guys keep cleaning up your house. You keep making it whole again. And every time you do, you spend all your time just trying to keep the house clean. No one ever moves in. Nothing ever is done in this house. You know what happens to a house that is abandoned? A house that nobody lives in. No matter how nice you have made it, no matter how much you have fixed it up, it begins to pretty rapidly fall apart. But it's weird. When somebody actually moves into the house, they may not even know how to take care of a house, but you know what they're doing? They're they're like cleaning and sweeping the floors, and they're like mowing the lawn and keeping things just sort of vaguely sort of organized. But they're there, and there's life in the house, and the house stays standing. But if that person were to move out, you would think it would stay in order better, but instead it begins to fall apart. And instead, the evil comes back in. So he says, for generations, since the beginning of time, your story has been, you purge your hearts, but nothing ever moves in. You spend all your time managing your sin. And your entire religion of Judaism has become um, this constant cycle of clean it up, clean it up, clean it up. And that's it. And eventually it comes back in. And every time it comes back in, it's worse. And then you end up losing land. And then you lost your temple. And then for generations, you were enslaved. This has been your story. You have spent all your time focusing on making the, the body clean. That nobody ever moved into the body. Nothing was ever done. Now, there is a general thought among modern Christians that the point of the law um, that, that the law actually is the point of the whole thing, that our job as Christians, our main thing is to like, to stay holy, to just abstain from sin, and that is the main thing. That is not the main thing at all, actually. Um, in order to understand this, you have to understand that also another vital aspect of the history of the Jewish people. There are two covenants separated by a vast amount of time. Um, there's an Abrahamic covenant and there's a Mosaic covenant, Okay. The world had gone wrong and God had called his people um, and said, you, you guys, I'm going to lead you on a rescue mission to fix things. Okay, I'm going to use you. And, and God gives them this covenant, which is a mission. He says, you're going to go out and you're going to bless the nations. You're going you're to restore people um, that need to be restored. You're going to fix things that are broken. You're going to be a blessing to all those around. You're going to... Um, you are going to do the work of God and be the presence of God and restore humanity to where it's supposed to be and I'm going to lead you through this. This was their first mission. Okay? They got off track. They got off track. And so what God does is God responds with another covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law. Most Christians tend to think the very first thing was, I'll fix the world. You, you be good and keep the law and don't sin. These two things did not come at the same time. 
There was a mission up front, up first, that we were put here to do. God's people, by the way, you are God's people. The whole book of Romans is about you, Gentiles, being grafted into Israel. We are God's people. Followers of Jesus as Lord. We continue. God is, God is doing this mission and he's using his church to do this. Our job, you, you, we were first. The most important thing is that we were put here with a mission and a purpose. The reconciliation and the restoration of all things to God. The law was given to the Israelites to assist them in the mission that they were supposed to do. Um, N.T. Wright, of course, puts it like this. Torah, that's the word for law, is given to separate Israel from the pagan world so that Israel may be the bearer of God's light to that world rather than having the world snuff it out. Um, Pay attention to that part. The law was given uh, to separate Israel from the pagan world so that the law was given for a purpose. The law was given to assist them in the main mission that God has for them which is setting things right, ordering God's world on the way it's supposed to be. The original purpose of the Adam and the Eve put here to do the work of ordering all things for, as icons and images of God in this place. But what happens is we get so hung up with the fact, look, the house is dirty, clean it up. And at some point we lost connection with the mission, with the Abrahamic covenant. And all we connect with now is the Mosaic covenant. And all we seem to care about is don't sin, cleanse your life of sin. And we spend all our time staring at ourselves, making ourselves more and more and more and more pure and holy. And we forget the fact that that was not why you were put here. You were actually put here to do something. Okay, the law, your ability to do right and to abstain from sin, that is a gift from God to you to assist you in the original mission God has put here to do. The law was never the point. You were not put here to stare at yourself in the mirror and to make yourself more and more and more beautiful all day long while everything falls apart around you. Actually, one of the big purposes of Christianity is to actually get to the place where you can actually transcend yourself and stop looking at yourself and look at the broken things around you and fix the things around you. And the law was originally made so that you could do that. There is a way that if you live this way, it will orient your heart towards the things of God and then you can do the work of God. But here we are no longer caring about the reconciliation of all things to God, all we tend to care about, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, is just just clean up the house. Just clean up the house. But if nobody ever moves in, it's going to get worse. Let me ask you a question. How has how has puritanical how has puritanical Christianity been working for you, for us collectively? spending all of our time making ourselves these pristine, sinless creatures, has that made us more holy? Maybe that's debatable. I would argue it's actually brought more sin into our lives. The sins of pride, lust for power, idolatry. Um, I, I would say puritanical Christianity has, has, has not created communities that set captives free, that reconcile people to God, that, that creates... Um, a bastion of hope for all those who have been neglected and rejected, all those who are sinners and failures who feel like they have no place in this world and who struggle with just, should I end it all today or not? And the Christian has nothing to say to them because we're too busy saying, you really got to clean the house up. And once you clean the house up, I think you'll have found your purpose. The purpose is not to clean the house up. The purpose is to welcome a Lord into that house that leads the house on a mission towards something. That's what the purpose of the house is. 
That's what it is. Now, um, holiness. Um, holiness, is, it's a gift from God. It is meant to assist you in what you are here to do. And what you are here to do is be the presence of God in this world and to forget yourself and to look at others and serve them and love them and be the presence of God in this place. We are the body of Christ. We are the only physical, tangible body that God actually has in this world right now. It is us, flesh and bone. This is it. If something is going to be done, the church is going to do it. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. So if Jesus is going to go wrap his arms around somebody, it's the church that is going to do it. If Jesus is going to go break some chains and open up some cell doors, the church is going to be the ones to do it. We are the physical body of of Christ here. We are it. Now, that is part two. Act three. There is this, there's this random episode. It doesn't feel like it connects, but I think it does and Matthew thinks it does. Okay, verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him and someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. A little redundancy. Um, he, replied, he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? New family, who dis? Pointing to his disciples. Pointing to his disciples, he says, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, seems like it doesn't connect. It absolutely connects. Um, it connects in the sense that um, there's a disconnect in our day because we don't actually have a word. Um, I guess we sort of do. They didn't have a word for what, what we have. Um, when, when we think of family, obviously, we've talked about this before too. I'm going to bring this in. Um, when we talk about family, we talk about a specific thing that is in our brains, a husband and wife, like... Um, or two people that, that procreate and create children and all those blood relatives live together in one space and that has how family has been defined for a while. In the first century, that is not how they defined it. Family, the, the closest thing they had to it was this thing called a household and that is the word that is used here for Jesus' family is here. Um, it's a word that refers to Jesus' household. A household was this sort of mixture of, of um, a husband and a wife and her slaves and his slaves and his children. And everyone in the whole thing um, was sort of working for the, what's called the glory. Stop me if you've heard this. Working for the glory of the Lord, right? The curios. So he's the, the pater familia, they called it. Um, and, and he was running the whole house. And if his... If his honor moved up in society, the whole house moved up in society, okay? So they would actually humble themselves in the sight of the Lord so that he would be lifted up, and then he was lifted up, they were lifted up. Again, maybe you've heard this. Um, And so there's this whole idea that, like, everyone in the family is owned by the guy, and they're all working for the guy um, to lift him up. This is what, this is basically what was coming to Jesus. In Jesus' Uh, day, we know, I don't have time to get into all this, but we know that Joseph had died by the time Jesus was an adult. Um, he's not in any of the texts. Um, and it, it's glaringly obvious that there's no father figure in the house, no husband um, for Mary. So she is, uh, she's widowed. Um, and they don't have a paterfamilia. And likely they are coming to Jesus because he is well known. He has a lot of honor. And they need him to come home. Because if he comes home, the whole family will have more honor. This is not, again, a nefarious thing. This is how the family structure worked in their day. The household. They were a household. And they needed him. So, Jesus, however, and Matthew, here's how they viewed the first century church. I hit the button. It didn't go nowhere. Here, hit the the space bar for me there. Um, 
Okay, back that one up. That's a secret. Nobody look. Okay. <laughs> there is this, they view the church, Jesus views the church, Matthew views the church as this surrogate family, okay? Um, it is this picture of the kingdom of God, and the church is supposed to be this. Um, there is one Lord, Jesus, and Jesus himself calls everyone in the church his brothers and sisters, okay? Um, and this is why in like a lot of Eastern Orthodox Christian communities, they call brother Jesus, right? They call him that because that's how he would speak to uh, the people in the church. However, everyone else in the church, all from different nationalities, all from different walks of life, slave and free, high-born, low-born, freedmen and slaves, um, poor and wealthy, women and men, foreigners, immigrants, all together in one place, all looking at each other as equals, serving one Lord, all working for the glory of the Lord. This was the picture of the church. Um, This was a complete affront to the, the household of the first century. Hit that next slide for me. Um, Matthew chapter 10, this explains this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This verse in context helps you understand what Jesus was doing here. Now, the first century church was made up of members of different households who all came together and viewed each other as a family, as equals, not as some hierarchy. Jesus was their Lord, and together they worked for the glory of that Lord, and all of them were lifted up together. And all together they were doing the work of their Lord. Okay, now, um, so they come together in this way. So, so Jesus is basically, um, hold on, I'm trying to figure out how to get where I'm going here. You ever like just get randomly stuck? Okay, so Jesus is, is basically telling them, um, this is not my family, I'm here to work against this, um, And my goal is that a man would sit across the table from his enemies, that two people from different walks of life would sit together and be together as members of the community of Jesus, together, there. Now, this idea of the church is long forgotten, but this is how it was supposed to be. In Acts chapter 2, you have everyone sort of selling everything they have and moving in together. Now, for the poor in the first century who joined the church, this was a, a bastion of rest and hope for them. This was, I have no one, I maybe have been rejected from the household I grew up in, from my birth household, and I have nothing. And, 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 and I found the church, and the church took me in and made me one of their own, made me equals, not some lowly slave or servant. They made me equal with them, and we are a family, okay? So that was the experience for the poor. For the wealthy, it was actually a different, different experience. It was this sacrifice that they would make. They would actually leave, as the text says here, um, they would turn against their, their own birth family, and they would move on, and they would come to a place in the church where they would actually make a huge sacrifice to join the church. And so the, the lower ends receive and are lifted up, and the higher ends actually give of their own power and, and ability uh, to take others in, and, and, and they use what money they have to provide for the work of God and the kingdom of God moving forth. Now, this has been displayed at different points in church history. One of the biggest places you will see this in recent history, actually, um, is in American history um, when, um, during, during the slave trade. Young African-Americans torn away from their, from their family and brought 
to this foreign land, no family, and no one. But you know what they had? They had faith in God, and they had an understanding of the mission of God in this place. And they band themselves together as these family units, and they worshiped, and they wrote these songs to tell their story and to carry it on. It was a huge deal. And it, it, it provided hope, and it sustained them through dark times, as the church is supposed to do, until the day when, when all of it broke loose. But even after that, even after the Emancipation Proclamation, it was, it was very difficult because they had nowhere else to go back to. You're free. Well, I can't go back to my family. What am I going to do? And these small family units, these churches that would form, they looked at each other as family. This was a huge deal. There are places in history where oppressed peoples really have displayed what it means to be the church. But a lot of us have actually missed it and forgotten um, or never have actually been in touch with what the actual church looked like and how it functioned. All of us working together, taking care of each other for the purpose of the kingdom. People being brought in who have been outcast, the sinners in our community, saying, you know what, you have a family here. You may never amount to anything out there when they look at you, but here you are equal with me. Jesus calls you his his sister. It's a huge deal. African-American theologian, um, Kane Hope Felder, Jesus was not so much concerned with with traditional family arrangements as he was with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And how this anticipation required a new kind of household. Blood relatives and language were no longer decisive criteria for the new household that God and the ministry of Jesus makes possible. Jesus is presenting the picture of the church as the solution to the constant attempts to keep the house clean. He says, you can keep the house as clean as you want, but you're not doing the mission of God. So we take these big three parts, and we see some very simple things. The first thing he says is, um, and the Matthew church wants you to know is, you should be listening for God, not just in the big, extravagant, huge events, in the everyday, small, mundane things. And you know where we best see the work of God and the mission of God and the presence of God? In the eyes of the people in our church community as we gather together. The things that they have gone through, the places they have come from, and we come together and we look each other in the eye and we see in this, this amazing thing is a gift from God and I can hear the message of God from these people in this community around me. And so we gather together and we pray and we offer hope and we wrap our arms around each other and we genuinely come together and be the presence of God in each other's lives. All of this stuff whittles down together to say this you want, you want a sign that God is with you? Hopefully you found that in the church. Hopefully the church is that bastion of hope where you have felt loved and lifted up where God's arms have been wrapped around you. He says there are too many people that, that no longer hear the word of God because they need some big experience. They need some ecstatic thing. They need some soundtrack playing in the background. They need just some emotional thing. But God is with you every day in the mundane things. And here's, here's a big deal. Um, communion. Why, so while I'm talking, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements, spread around the room. Communion, at the heart of the word communion is this word common. You know what that is? These are two common elements. There's bread and there's wine. You've had wine, you've had bread, you've had them at these gatherings or whatever. Um, but in this moment, this is a decision to look at two common things and to see Christ in them. This is an exercise. This is a spiritual discipline. You come to the table. You pray that God would help you see this and, and receive what God has for you. And you walk up to the bread and the wine and you look at it and you see the body of Christ broken for you. You see the blood of Christ spilled for you. And you affirm that this is how reconciliation comes into the world. 
allowing myself to be broken and broken and poured out for those around me. Reconciliation, healing, salvation doesn't come into the world through me doing my best to maintain um, perfect purity in all things. Oftentimes, your attempts to live this perfect life is actually what's causing you to not hear from Jesus at all. Perhaps if you join Jesus in what Jesus is doing, you will kill two birds with one stone. Your life will begin to align with, with, with the life of Christ and you will begin to hear God as he becomes actually Lord of your house, as he moves in. And so in communion, we come on up and we take a piece of bread. It's the body of Christ broken for you. You take the wine, it's the blood of Christ poured out for you. Two common everyday things and you're seeing Christ in the common. This is an exercise. When you go out these doors, you should, you should exercise this over and over and over. Attempt to see Christ in the common. We're told there will be, be people who will stand before God and he'll say, he'll say, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they're like, what are you talking about? He says, when you saw these everyday people who were suffering in this way and you did nothing to help them, you were rejecting me because that was Christ in the common. That was Christ in the common. That was Christ in the common. Someone breaks down on the side of the road and you see someone else there jacking their car up and taking the wheel off. Christ in the common. Just putting a simple thing back together. You see someone crossing the street, taking your time, letting them go, waving them, smiling. Christ in the common, grace for you, grace for you, peace for you, working for the good of others. Working to proclaim that and let people know that I do everything I do because Jesus is Lord, which means no one else is. There is no Lord but Jesus and is the only place my decision should be made from. All of this, Christ in the common. The decisions that you make every day, Christ in the common. So we're gonna take communion. Um, I want to invite all of you to take communion with us, um, no matter where you're from, uh, no matter where you're at. Um, take some time, talk to Jesus, take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine glass. The body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ has been poured out for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Make us whole. Go before us, guide us. Help us to see you every day in the mundane. As we take care of our families as we do our work. Let us see you in it. Let us see you taking things somewhere. Let us see our part in it. Let us not get distracted and obsessed with ourselves. But let us get obsessed with your own kingdom. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.